Well, let's look in our Bibles to the book of Mark. We're in our study series on the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. Everybody doing okay today? Everybody breathe? All right, don't be tense on me. It makes me nervous. I preach longer if you're tense, see? So uh, loosen up, relax. Uh, But uh, we're in Mark, there you go, Uh, we're in Mark chapter 1. And uh, what we're going to do is we're going to read in Mark, we're going to read verses 12 through 14, looking at a very brief part in the Gospel of Mark about the temptation of Christ. But we're going to use uh, that uh, and bounce over to Matthew Uh, for our study, because Matthew gives us a lot more details about that event. So if you'd stand to your feet, we're going to read from Mark chapter 1, beginning at verse 12 through 14. And I believe it should be on the screen. Is that true? Very good. Excellent. You guys are fantastic. And let's look at verse 12. I'm reading from the ESV, and that is what is on the screen. You can follow along. The Bible says, "...the Spirit immediately drove him, Jesus, out into the wilderness." And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for the power and the authority of Jesus. I pray that we'd be strengthened by this word today. Lord, we pray that you would convict us by your word, conform us to your word, convince us that Jesus Christ is our only hope. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, God, be acceptable in your sight. And I ask this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. All right, you may be seated. Somewhere, I don't have the exact date, but I remember it was somewhere back in the early 80s. Great director, Martin Scorsese. How many of you recognize that name? I think he did Goodfellas, and he's done a lot of movies. And he's done some turkeys, too. Not too many. He's a great director. Uh, But he really did one that was a bomb. I mean, it would not only bombed at the box office, but it was just a bomb of a movie. And it was called The Last Temptation of Christ. William Defoe, the actor, he played Jesus. How many remember that came out somewhere in the 80s? And, you know, and everybody was all freaked out over it. And they should be because uh, it was, first of all, there is an account of Jesus being going through a period of temptation, as we'll look at by Satan. But what he did was he based it on a book that uh, he had some kind of religious epiphany. And this was kind of a personal little movie project that he wanted to make. And so he made this movie. And it, it was not based upon Scripture whatsoever. It was based upon a novel that uh, somebody had written, and their fantasy about Jesus and, and this. And it really portrayed Jesus really as someone who uh, just questioned what he was supposed to do. He was, uh, it, it showed, I don't want to get into it, it, it just was blasphemous of, of him uh, engaging or being tempted in sexual activity. It was just a horrible movie. Now, you know, if other faiths had tried, you know, if they'd come out with a movie of another faith, you know, oh, it would be the end of the world. But, you know, as long as it's Christians, that's okay. You can mock and attack all day long. But there is an actual historical account given in the Bible, the Word of God. And that's our authority, the Word of God. It's accurate. We don't have to worry about it, doubt it. God has confirmed His Word to us. And we just looked at 
the passage in Mark chapter 1, but as I said in a moment, we're going to look over to Matthew 4 and use that to kind of uh, uh, flesh out more of what happened here in this wilderness period of this temptation of Jesus, okay? But just a little quick review. Remember, we're in the Gospel of Mark, and the Gospel of Mark began in uh, verse 1, and it began as a, with an announcement of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. So it began with an announcement. And then it spoke about a, an ambassador of this Messiah, and his name was John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer, okay? He wasn't the first Baptist, It was just that he was noted for his activity, and he baptized outside of of, uh, Jerusalem and outside out out of the city, and he was baptizing for repentance of sins, and he was calling people to turn to God and prepare for uh, what uh, God was about to do. Uh, And then not only did we have that announcement, you had an ambassador, but Jesus himself came to the waters of where John the baptizer, his cousin actually, his earthly roots, came, and Jesus himself was baptized by John. And Jesus did it not because he needed repentance of his sin, but part of it was that inauguration of Jesus' ministry that he did it to identify with sinners. Jesus came to take on the sin of the world. And so we said figuratively, here he came into that same water that all those who had come before to figuratively have their uh, the cleansing aspect of their sign of repentance. Jesus himself, the perfect Lamb of God, without sin, stepped into those very waters and immersed himself and symbolizing his identifying with sinful humanity, part of his mission that he was coming to do. So not only do you have the announcement of the gospel, the ambassador of John, the affirmation, because what's really happened in that baptismal event is the father affirmed his calling in his ministry, uh, affirmed it. And now we go from affirmation of the father affirming that Jesus, this is my son in whom I'm, what, well pleased, the father said, okay? Doesn't get any better than that. Goes from the affirmation now to an attack. And so that's where we come into this place that is, deals with the temptation or Jesus being taken into the wilderness. So I want you to turn in your Bibles over to uh, back, take a left to Matthew and look to chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. We're going to use Matthew chapter 4 this morning to round out and help us understand what happened in this wilderness temptation where Jesus confronted Satan, the devil, okay? The Bible says in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, it says that the Spirit uh, led Jesus into the wilderness. Uh, That means God was behind this initiative after this wonderful event where he's affirmed in the baptismal, the Holy Spirit descended like a dove. And now what has happened? It says immediately in Mark. Mark uses the word immediately a lot because he's fast-paced. And so immediately, or in Matthew chapter 4, it says, verse 1, it says, the Spirit drove or led or pushed Jesus into the wilderness. And we think, well, that seems kind of odd after this great, wonderful uh, you know, event that took place on the waters of baptism 
that Jesus now would be into this situation where he is going to be confronted by Satan. And so what's that all about? Well, one of the things that's key to understand, especially as we study in Mark. Now, stay in Matthew, but Mark is really where we're, we're, gonna, where we're at. One of the things that's an important theme in this part of Mark, and really all, runs all through Mark's gospel, is the issue of the authority of Christ. Okay, And this really is kind of the first of several things that happen in the first two chapters that demonstrate Jesus' authority. Uh, Don't take time to look at it, but in Mark chapter 1, verse 27, it really gives us a little insight because Jesus has just finished teaching. And the Bible says in Mark 1, 27, that the people were amazed at his teaching because they said, or Mark 1, 27 says, that he taught as one who had authority wasn't like the religious teachers because they based their authority upon what the rabbis had taught previously. And here you have Jesus that stands up there and says, this is what it is, you know. He taught as one who had authority. And so that theme of authority is important to keep in mind as we walk through the first few, all, all through Mark, but especially the first couple of chapters where his authority is demonstrated. And this Wilderness, this temptation, this confrontation between Jesus and Satan really sets us up for the first of many of these uh, pictures that demonstrate and show the authority of Christ. Now, it says that Jesus was, uh, had this encounter or the Spirit uh, led or pushed or, or drove him into the wilderness to be confronted or tempted by Satan. Uh, this was, this was uh, uh, you know, we, we sometimes feel like the devil's after us. Well, keep in mind, the Bible teaches that Satan is a created being. He's not God. He's not, you know, there's a theological word, omniscient. That means, uh, uh, or that's all-knowing. Omnipresent means he's everywhere at once, okay? Satan cannot do that because he's a created being. Only God is, can be omnipresent. Only God can be omniscient, knowing all things. And so here is this confrontation with Satan. Now, we won't get into it because it doesn't, it's not germane really to what we want to do this morning, but the Bible has a lot to say. In fact, Jesus uh, has a lot to say about the devil, about Satan. And, uh, you know, we've tried to, in our culture and over time, we want to picture the devil in a little red outfit with a pitchfork. And, you know, we have kind of these cartoonish characters. But don't mistake the fact that the Bible teaches that Satan is real. Okay? Satan is real. D.L. Moody was asked, well, how do you know the devil is real? And Moody says, because I've done business with him. And uh, so uh, that was a good reminder. But you remember the, and you've heard me say this several times, is that C.S. Lewis in his uh, book called The Screwtape Letters, which is a great little book on uh, spiritual warfare, I'd encourage you to read. And one of the things that he counsels us in there is to make sure that we don't fall in the ditch on either extreme. That we can fall in the ditch where, and you know, you've seen some folks in the body of Christ that kind of are prone to this, where everything is a devil, everything's a demon. I mean, there are some that 
If you sneeze and got a cold, you've got a cold demon. You've got an allergy. Everything's demons. And you know what happens when you do that? You become more conscious of what? Devils. I mean, you just feel like the devil, you know, everywhere. Well, that's an extreme I'm not sure is healthy. In fact, I know it's not healthy. But there's the other extreme, and the other extreme Lewis counsels us to be aware of is that we don't just blow it off and figure, oh, that's just a cartoon character, Satan's not real. We go to the other extreme. The Bible teaches that Satan is real, but at the same time, the Bible teaches that God is the one who is in sovereign, absolute control. Read the book of Job sometime. And how Satan in this, in this situation had to come before the presence of God. I mean, it's a, it's a fantastic story. And that he, he was only allowed by God to do so much to Job. Won't get into that. But the devil is real and the Bible affirms it. Jesus has a lot to say about Satan and his forces and the kingdom of darkness. James 4, 7 says that we are to resist the devil, okay? And that we are to, or it says, actually, we submit to God and resist the devil and he will flee from you. Where's the emphasis? Submit to God. Obey God. Focus on God. And by focusing on God, by virtue of focusing on Him, you can't be focused on doing the devil's bidding and he will flee from you. Why? Because he knows he can't get anywhere with you. Because your mind and your focus is on God. And so here we have Jesus in this situation. And it's important just to consider what was really... We could break it down to kind of one essence of what Satan was up to. What is he trying to do? And I think it's this, and I'm going to read it because I wrote it down. The devil and the purpose of the temptation was evil, okay? That was what he was doing. But it was an attempt to get Jesus to question God's word, misuse God's promises in Scripture, and to tempt Jesus to disobey the mission that God the Father had sent him to accomplish at the cross, but instead of going to the cross to uh, be in collusion with Satan, all right? That's what Satan was after. Now, keep in mind, Satan is not, is not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. He's got a lot of data, but because he doesn't have the spirit, he can't process the data in any accurate way. He's just, he's just trying to react because really, if you think about it, if Satan really understood the purposes of God on the cross, do you think he would have allowed Jesus to be crucified? But Jesus, but the devil thought that was the way to destroy Jesus. All right, so Satan's confused. We know that, okay? And he doesn't really have any new material. It's all exposed here in Scripture. So let's look at uh, in Mar- or Matthew. If I say Mark, forgive me. Just stay with me in Matthew. Uh, But we're going to look at chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Let me just throw a couple little things out here. And I have a lot more detail, but I'm not going to waste time. No, it's not a waste, but it just, we won't have time to get into it. But remember, when you study the Old Testament, understanding the Old Testament helps us to understand the new. The new unlocks the old, okay? The old, the new is revealed in the old, but it's in the new covenant that the old is unlocked. And we really understand the fuller picture there. And so there's a lot of little subtle 
nuances and, and motifs in Scripture in the New Testament that point back to the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. Remember, the early church, these early disciples and followers of Jesus, that was the Bible, the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi. There's a couple little things I just throw out here, and you can study it uh, on your own and look it up. But one of the things that's important to keep in mind is that Jesus, the Bible teaches in Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 15, and other places, that Jesus is called the second Adam. Okay? What's that all about? It means that Jesus came to fulfill and accomplished what the first Adam failed to do. The second Adam, Jesus, Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 15, talks about this. The second Adam came to fulfill the purposes of God. Let me read you a few scriptures real quick just to help that. Um, Romans 5, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Adam was a type of the one who was to come. The, Adam was a type. He was a picture of Jesus, the second Adam, okay? He should have walked in obedience. And it goes on in verse 5, verse 17 of Romans. For if because of one man's trespass or sin, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last Adam, Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. I just point that out to you because just as Adam and Eve failed, okay, in their setting, Jesus was victorious in his setting. So the identifier of Jesus as that second Adam is an important concept to keep in mind here when we look at this passage. Just have that in the background. The other thing, it says that he was fasting for 40 days. 40 is used usually in the Old Testament as a number referring to judgment or testing. How long were the Israelites in the wilderness? 40 years, okay? So keep that in mind that Jesus is portrayed also in Scripture, symbolizing or fulfilling as Moses was a type of a redeemer calling God's people out of Egypt. Jesus is the redeemer calling people out of their spiritual deadness in Egypt, okay? So those are all little things that are kind of portrayed there that are interesting to pick up on. But let's look at chapter uh, 4 and um, and verse 1 of, uh, of this passage. Let's look at these three temptations that are mentioned here. The first is Satan, let me just read it. I don't want to skip over it here because uh, Matthew gives us a little different, uh, sometime a different wording. But Matthew chapter 4, and let me just read 1 through 3, and we'll talk about the first one here. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Okay, humanity, Jesus was human, and God, uh, Philippians 2 talks about that. And the tempter, or Satan, came and said to him, okay, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. So the first temptation that we see here is that Satan 
told Jesus, if you're the son of God, you're hungry, then why not turn these stones into bread? Now, I don't really know because the Bible doesn't elaborate on everything Satan would have done. I don't know if somehow he was able to create or make these stones in some kind of vision of bread. I don't know if he could recreate the smell. I remember as a kid, my grandmother lived next to Buttercrust Bread Bakery. And I tell you, that was absolute torture when they were cranked up and baking bread. And I remember as a first grader, we took a tour through this uh, you know, the bread place. And of course, the smell and the aroma. And the big payoff was that at the end of the tour, you got a slice, yes, Evelyn, you got a slice of hot bread and butter. Let me tell you something. I wolfed that thing down and I would have sold my pinky to get another kid's piece. I mean, it was just torture. Well, the Bible says that Jesus had been fasting for 40 days. After 40, 45 days, um, somewhere in there, the body starts the process of starvation. And what that means is that the organs are being consumed by the body. So this is beyond just a little snack. This is hunger. This is a real temptation in Jesus' humanity. And the, the, the thing that I want you to focus in on is that in both the first and the second temptation... Satan directly attacks what God the Father affirmed at the baptism. You are my son in whom I'm well pleased. And so in the first two temptations, Satan's line of attack is if, if you're really the son of God. Prove it. That's where he's attacking. Now, in a similar way, Satan always attacks our position and security and identity in Christ, doesn't he? If you're really a Christian, you wouldn't think those thoughts. If you're really a Christian, you would do this, you would do that. If you're really a Christian, you would, right? To undermine who we are. Undermine who we are positionally. Well, he tried that attack uh, on, on Jesus. I mentioned about that second Adam picture that Jesus in the New Testament is pictured as. Now, if you compare these three temptations, they're very similar to Satan's line of attack in Genesis chapter 3. Okay, we won't do that, but they're, very, they're almost parallel to each other. And Jesus, or, or Satan, right away wants to undermine and attack the veracity, the authority, the reliability, the trustworthiness of God's word. Okay? God said, you are my beloved son. And so by attacking or suggesting that Jesus is, if he's hungry, <coughs> that he should turn the stones into bread, really what Satan is really subtly getting at is this, kind of what he did with Eve. Remember what the, the you can eat of every tree of the garden except one tree. And Satan says, well, God's not going to really take your life if you do it. He's just bluffing, right? And says, now, you know, he knows that if you partake of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like him. In other words, you know, you can't, I don't know what kind of games God is playing with you, Eve, but, 
you know, he's holding out on you. He, he doesn't want you to be like him. And he knows when you partake of this, then, then you'll enter into a spiritual dimension. Go ahead and just, just, just take a bite. Doesn't say an apple. Don't say, you know, I know we get that in our cult. Doesn't say anything about apples. Go ahead and take a bite. Okay? Well, Satan is saying, in essence, the same thing to Jesus. You can't really rely on the word there of who you are. Listen, you're hungry, man. It's in your prerogative to turn these stones into bread. I mean, you're the son of God, right? Come on, do it. Jesus doesn't take, no pun intended, he doesn't bite. (laughs) All right? That wasn't written down. Thank you, Lord, for that little... He doesn't take the bait. In fact, he says, look what he says in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. And Jesus answered, quoting Deuteronomy 8.3. All of these quotes, by the way, that Jesus uses in this passage are all from the book of Deuteronomy. Which, by the way, when you, look, when you understand what Deuteronomy is, it was Moses' final message before the Israelites entered into the promised land. And when you lay out the book of Deuteronomy, it's an exposition of the Ten Commandments, the law of God. And it appears to be this is what Jesus is meditating upon in this period of time because all his quotes are from the book of Deuteronomy. And what does he say? Um, It tells us here in Matthew, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that comes from the mouth of God. Again, it doesn't, we don't have time to develop it. It just, but, but Satan is always looking to undermine the word of God. Did God really say? And we have to be people that are committed to the word of God. And one of the things that unfortunately has happened in many sex sections of, of the church has been those who have sought to undermine Scripture, that the Bible was really not written by the people it says it was written by. You can't really rely upon certain events of whether they've happened. And so, again, there's a whole train of thought to question and undermine and dissect God's Word. You've heard me talk about the Jefferson Bible uh, by Thomas Jefferson. He didn't like the miracles and the supernatural, so what did he do? He cut out all the, ta- all the sayings of Jesus. He didn't want any miracles or, or anything like that, and he pasted them into his own little book. So it was just kind of a, the teachings and good thoughts of Jesus, and they call it the Jefferson Bible. You can actually order a copy. You can buy one. But that's not the Word of God. Paul said, when, and I believe it was Acts 20, when he was getting ready to leave Ephesus, he told those elders that I have not shrunk, the old King James, I think, says, from declaring to you the whole counsel of God's Word. Okay, So Satan is always looking to undermine the authority of God's Word, and by also undermining the authority of God's Word, he's really undermining the character of God. Is he not? And so that's the first line of attack. But notice, secondly, in verse 6 of Matthew, all right? We're in Matthew 4. Then it says, verse 5, Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. 
pinnacle of the temple of the temple in Jerusalem, maybe about 450, 500 feet. I don't know how this all worked, whether it was, I don't know. It doesn't give us that information. I know Hollywood wants to try to, you know, help us along there. But for whatever happened, uh, he took him to the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, look again, look at the word there, if, what's he doing? Undermine who you are, if you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Satan says, you know what, I'm, a, I'm, kind of a, I'm kind of a Bible student myself. I like the Bible. I like to quote it, so you quote the Bible to me, Jesus. You know what, I'm appreciative of the good book. In fact, he quotes from Psalm 91. Now, what you also have to keep in mind here in this is, even though the devil is trying to get himself in on the act, he takes him up and essentially says, look, if you would just leap off the pinnacle of the temple, you really don't have to be starving yourself and going through this whole thing that you're doing. I mean, if you would leap off the pinnacle of the temple and people would witness the angels cushioning you as you descended in their midst, can you imagine the publicity you would get out of that? I mean, CNN and Fox and all. I mean, they would have that thing. People would have their self. I mean, that would be a spectacular event, and it would just, you know, Jesus, look, I'm a practical man, the devil says. Let's just cut to the chase, and you want to be the Messiah? Fine, be a Messiah. But there's easier ways than this crazy suffering deal. Satan always likes to be practical, doesn't he? He always likes to be helpful, Yeah. You ever find that in your life? I do. Well, this makes sense. This, sure, that, and we begin to rationalize. Why should I do this, that, and the other when this would be so much easier? But Jesus was committed to obeying his Father. And so look at what Jesus, the reaction. Jesus said to him again, it is written. Three times it is written. Deuteronomy 6, 16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You want me to take matters in my own hands, but really what you're asking me to do is to test God. Maybe, maybe it was something like this. Satan, you want me to test God, but you have to understand that God is not the one to be tested. I am the one being tested, and that means my responsibility is not to challenge my father, but to trust him. No matter the practicality, I am sticking with the mission and purpose that God has destined and planned for my life. You see, again, going back to Genesis 3, questioning the reliability, can you really trust God? Uh, I said this earlier, you know, Satan told Eve, your eyes will be open. God's holding out on you. He does that 
with us oftentimes and looking at our life and thinking, oh, my life should be so much better. Here I am at midlife and I've not accomplished half of what I wanted to do or what I thought I should do. And, and the enemy says, yeah, you're right. You deserve it. You deserve a break today. Make some changes. Listen, divorce isn't a big deal. You know, you just outgrown each other. No fault divorce. No big deal. You need somebody that's more supportive. And better looking might not help, you know. You're not getting any younger. You know, maybe you should start a whole new life. I love the idea when people said, yeah, I just sold everything, went off, to, and I, and I went out west or wherever it was, went to another country to find myself. Well, here's a clue. Give me that money, and if you're looking for yourself, I will tell you who you are. If you are that stupid that you need to find yourself, figure up what you're going to spend, bring it to me. I'll get part of it to the missions, of course, you know. And uh, what does that mean? You know, Satan's really practical because behind it all is God really hasn't been fair to you. He's holding out on you. You've got to take matters, man, into your own hands. Okay? Turn these stones into bread. Get up there on that pinnacle of the temple. Leap off. Let the angels do what the Bible says they are to do. You see, something that's important to keep in mind, those of you who take your Bible study seriously, is, and, and Satan gives us a perfect illustration of taking a scripture out of context, okay? And the Reformers had a phrase called the analogy of faith. It just simply meant this, is that we take the full counsel of God's Word to give us clarity and understanding concerning scripture. We don't just take a verse. See, Jehovah's Witnesses are really adept at that. And Mormons and and cult groups, they'll take a verse out out of context in order to prove some point that they may have. We take the full counsel of the Word of God to give us understanding. Satan's always trying to twist Scripture and misrepresent it. But notice thirdly, the third temptation. It's almost as though you get a little sense of Satan's just getting a little impatient and thinks, okay, I'll really pull this. This will do it. I've gotten, you know, maybe he thought, you know, I've really tripped up some people with this one. What does he say? Look at Matthew chapter 4, verse 8. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain. I don't know what kind of, what all was involved there, but it says he took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Why did Satan fall? The Bible says because he was jealous of God's glory. Could it be he said, you know what? This is my ace in the hole. We all want to, we all love glory. We all love to be first. We all love the adulation. This worked on me, and I know it'll work on this guy. And he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he said to him, all these... I will give you. You got to do one thing. Just fall down 
and worship me. That's it. That's it. One writer who, and I'm not a big uh, fiction writer, the people that's, but it, sometimes it's helpful if they don't go over the line. But, um, and I would not necessarily recommend her other books, but she did write an interesting account, Anne Rice. Uh, some of you may be familiar with the name. And she converted to Christianity and wrote some books on the life of Christ, fictional. But she wrote an interesting account of this dialogue. And I found it almost eerily like, wow, that almost sounds like it. It was those Satanists saying, look, you don't really have to bow down. Just, just you know, hey, just between you and me, just, just nod your head. Just kind of, just, you know, a little nod. That, that's all it takes. You can eat, have glory, the king, we don't have to, all this. You don't have to go through all this. Now, I don't know if that happened. It doesn't say But Jesus said, verse 10, Be gone, Satan. Don't you like that? I am tired of dealing with you. Get out of here. He had the authority to do that. And by the way, we who are in Christ, we have that authority. Okay? He said, Be gone, Satan, for it is written. Three times. What is he citing? The authority of the Word of God. Deuteronomy 6.13, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. Now, what I find really interesting about this, and just bear with me, do you remember the baptismal account when the voice of the Father said, this is my Son? Okay, remember? Everybody remember that? Okay. Well, there is the... Most scholars believe that that parallels Psalm... I think, was it Psalm chapter 2? verse 7 through 8, that reads this way, where it says, that's a messianic psalm, a psalm that was looking forward to Jesus, the Messiah. And Psalms 2, 7, and 8 says, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That's what verse 7 says. And most folks believe that that's paralleling that messianic psalm. Okay? Now, just hang on. What is Satan wanting to do? He says, look, look. All of these are mine. I I can give them to you. But that was bogus. The kingdoms and the world and the nations, they are not his. Psalm 24, 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He's making a bogus offer. He can't give him anything. In fact, the reason I mentioned that Psalms 2, verse 7, is because of the very next verse Referring to him as the Son of God, Messianic Psalm, verse 8 says, The Lord is, though there's this dialogue, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You know the reason Jesus wasn't interested? is because he already possessed all things. Revelation eleven fifteen, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. So, what is this? How does this work for us? Let me give you three quick, quick applications. One is that we face the same battles. 
This is probably one of those passages that's hard to preach because you want to just try to stay out of the way because it really, it really just preaches itself. But we need to, when we see this and we see this, this spiritual attack and this picture of Jesus in this, in this uh, setting of being tempted by Satan, it's a reminder that we face the same battles. Now, we're not the Son of God. Don't mistake me in that. The Bible says that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We, as believers, are engaged in a spiritual battle against the forces of evil. And if you don't know that, then maybe you're not a believer. Because I've, you ever hear people say, I never realized how, many, how much trouble I had or problems until I became a Christian. Now, I think one of the reasons they might say that is because I never realized what all hell would break loose when I went from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. You see, as long as you did your bidding... And Jesus makes this comparison between an earthly, the father of Satan and the father, heavenly father. As long as we did everything that the enemy, the, the, of the ruler of darkness of this earth, you know, we, we, we didn't have too much trouble. Oh, we had trouble. But, you know, he never really, we, you know, he left us alone, so to speak. Never leaves us alone. But you get the idea. Secondly, all right, somebody's boinging phone there. All right. Not only do we face the same battles, secondly, we have the same choice. Okay? We have the same choice. Just as Jesus did, we have the choice of either trusting God and sticking to the authority and reliability of God's Word and allowing God... See, Jesus was more focused and committed to faithfulness in God than him trying to fulfill his own satisfaction through his own means. Often we're not there. We're more focused on fulfilling my life. And guess what? The church in America has filled this false gospel by filling its, its churches with a false gospel message that the purposes of God is for you to fulfill whatever it is you want with your life so you can have every day as a Friday. My friends, that is not a true gospel. A commitment to the gospel will usually involve suffering if you're committed to obedience. And so we have the same choice. We have the same choice. And thirdly, we can face we face the same battles. We have the same choice, and thirdly, we can have the same victory. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10:13, "No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out." so that you can stand up under it. Notice it doesn't necessarily say that sometimes when the temptation occurs that you'll be, you can escape from it. We love escape. 
picture is that you'll be strengthened so you can stand up under it. Jesus endured this testing. You know, if I were to go out, let's say, I don't know who the Jeep dealership is around here. Uh, does Regal sell Jeeps? Okay, I didn't think so. That's the reason I didn't mention them. <laughs> uh, but I go to the Jeep dealer and I want to get, you know, the, the, the most, you know, the newest. And I want to four-wheel drive the whole thing. And the salesman, uh, you know, he takes me out. And boy, he takes me out. And we tr- test everything. We go four-wheel riding the whole bit. What's he trying to do? He's showing me what this thing can do. Why did Jesus, why was he allowed by God and the Holy Spirit to go into this wilderness temptation because God the Father was putting him on display to say, look at what my son can do. He is not threatened by the powers of darkness in this life. The first Adam failed, but my son is victorious. What a picture of the victory of Christ. Ephesians 6.17, we're told to take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Let me ask you, if Jesus, the perfect Son of God, who had perfect communion with God, perfect relationship with God, if He committed Himself to the authority of God's Word, how much more is God's Word in our life? How much more important should it be? Greatly important. And what Jesus reminds us three times. Three is an important number in the Bible. The Trinity. Remember Isaiah's vision in Isaiah 6? I saw the Lord high and lifted up and around him. Day and night, angels crying out three times. Holy, holy, holy. Anytime you see repetition in Scripture, it is meant to make emphasis. Jesus said, verily, verily, or truly, truly. See, in other words, bold type, above the fold, neon lights, pay attention to this. Jesus three different times said, it is written, it is written, it is written. What is he making emphasis on? The authority and the power of the Spirit of the Word of God. And we should be committed to doing just that. Real quick, last last thing we'll do. Turn over to Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 3. Turn over your Bibles. Look in your Bibles. This is, this is familiar, but listen to it in this context of this morning. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 8. Proverbs 3, verses 5 through 8. What does it say? It says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. See, Scripture helps us not to do that. We are prone to lean on my own understanding. Be careful when people say, well, I don't know what the Bible says, but I think blah, blah, blah. I don't care what you think. What you think is not going to get me through the valleys of the shadow of death. I need something more reliable than Aunt Mamie's advice in your life. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding in all your ways. 
acknowledge him and what? And he will make straight your paths. Talk about being obedient to word through the word. Believe verse 7. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. There's your choice. There's your way of escape. Well, I don't know how it happened. I don't know what, how all this trouble. Well, I can tell you how it happened. You got in your car. You put the key in the ignition. You drove 15 miles. You went in. You paid the whatever. You, 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 know, you weren't just possessed like a robot. To, you made choices all along the way. Now, don't raise your hand, but there have been times in my life I was in the process of making a bad choice. And by God's grace, I made a U-turn and avoided making that choice. Now, I'd be lying to you to say I didn't go all the way down the interstate and make some bad choices. Hello? But I love what Titus 2 says, first few verses there, of how the Holy Spirit teaches us to say no to unrighteousness. The Holy Spirit teaches us to say no by the grace of God to unrighteousness. Verse 7, do not be wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord, and turn away from evil. Now look at verse 8. We'll end with this. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Remember after Cain had murdered his brother Abel. And the Lord says, Cain, why are you so downcast? Do you not know that if you do right, you'll be accepted? Now let's put that in New Covenant language. It isn't because we do right. It's because we serve and are under the lordship of one who did right. And we're obedient to the lordship under the lordship of Christ. But the point is is that when you're living in this constant tension and turmoil between sin and righteousness, it makes you miserable. It makes you cranky, unhappy. You're restless. Why? Because Jesus said you cannot serve two what? Masters. You either love one and hate the other. If Jesus was committed to the authority of Scripture, and this is one who could have called what, a zillion angels at his defense, it has been said that the Bible is an armory of heavenly weapons. The Bible is a laboratory of infallible medicines. It's a mine of exhaustive, exhaustless wealth, a guidebook for every road, a chart for every sea, a medicine for every malady, and a balm for every wound. God's Word is a powerful weapon, but it only is a powerful weapon if you use it. 